Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Hello there and welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast with you every Friday morning with your favourite podcasting app or indeed Friday evenings on RTE Radio. My name is Dusty Rhodes. Welcome to show number 920. Joining me as always is our editor-in-chief, Niall Kitson. A couple of very interesting bits in the news this week, Niall. Let's kick off with Amazon. What's happening? group of 15 investors uh, brought, uh, sorry, a group of investors brought 15 resolutions to the uh, board of Amazon and the shareholders. And these were basically looking at things like uh, environmental impact, companies used to use of plastics, companies' treatment of workers, basically things that, that sort of fall under the, the umbrella of sort of ethical investing uh, kind of a thing. You know, would you support this company if they happen to be responsible for, uh, you know, polluting the earth with plastics, you know, all, all this level of, of stuff, you know. Uh, and of course, these 15 resolutions were all voted down by shareholders. Um, basically, the way it works in the States is if you get 30 to 40 percent of votes in favor of a resolution, the company is bound to do something about it. Maybe not implement all the, all the you know, suggestions, but they're bound to do something. Uh, Jeff Bezos has like 12 and a half percent, 12.7 percent of, of Amazon. So, his, his word carries a, an awful lot of weight. We don't know what the exact percentages was in terms of uh, these resolutions being voted down. But anyway, nothing's going to happen officially on workers' rights for the moment at boardroom level anyway. Uh, we do know that since, what, uh, April, end of April, uh, Amazon workers on Staten Island got union recognition, which is going to be the, the, the first um, crack in the dam I think before Amazon uh, starts having to, to work with unions en masse, uh, which, which is fantastic because as, as a system driven, systems driven company, Amazon prides itself on uh, efficiency. Uh, people generally aren't because things happen to people and they're not the most reliable cogs in a system, as we all know. So a little humanity is required. But when, you, but when your business is based on having a, an autonomous system, Two aren't necessarily compatible. So this is going to be a very interesting time for Amazon. Officially, still not interested in, in um, you know, looking at uh, corporate social responsibility investment issues, I suppose. Would you support Amazon if you, if you had a few extra quid to spare? Uh, I'm not sure if I put money into them because Amazon are doing a, a change where they're doing what's called a stock split. So say your uh, one share is now worth $2,000. It's in and around that. Uh, that. A lot of people can't buy shares at that price. So they're doing what's called a stock split. And for every one share you have now that's worth $2,000, in two weeks time, it will be 20 shares worth $100 each. Am I explaining uh, that correctly? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So it's, it's the same value, but what tends to happen sometimes is because of that, the value will just go up or more people will buy them and you get an increase. However, at the moment, everything is going down. So hmm. it's like, meh, do you, don't you? Uh, I think I'm not really a gambling person, so no, I wouldn't I wouldn't put money into Amazon. Anyway, that, 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 that's stock market stuff. We want to concentrate on tech. Um uh, Twitter are spending big in the US over ad targeting. Tell me about this. Oh, they're spending big in the States. Could you imagine how much this would cost them over here with GDPR? Um, basically, Amazon have been fined $150 million in the States 
for doing something that will bowl you over when you hear it. Basically, they were caught sharing phone numbers with advertisers. So if you put in your phone number for, you know, to activate your two-factor authentication, that number was being shared with commercial partners, with potential advertisers, or rather with advertisers. That's crazy because you think Twitter is a big brand and is one of the most well-known brands in the world. Is it trustworthy, et cetera, and so on? Maybe that's why you put in your phone number. I'm very careful about the information that I put in on systems. And I I, I find a lot of questions are being asked. Quite often I'm asked, what's your date of birth for a website where my date of birth is irrelevant? It's not mm, even like to yeah. prove that I'm over 18 or anything like that. So I've got, I've got a, a different date of birth that I use for that. Um, mm. and, uh, the, you one, know, one, 1900. That's what actually, I'm born. Actually, that's, that, <laughs> that's the one that I put in. Uh, but half the time it won't accept it because it's going, you're too old. Because <laughs> 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 it knows you'd be 120 years of age. <laughs> There's no way. Anyway, I'm shocked to hear that Twitter are uh, spending, doing that kind of stuff in the year. And you're right. Just as well, they didn't do that in the EU because the EU would absolutely go with them and I think would take 10% of their, their turnover worldwide. Yeah, certainly 4% anyway. Uh, Elon Musk weighed in because, of course, he did when it comes to Twitter these days. He said, uh, if Twitter was not truthful here, what else is not true? Oh, sounds like somebody wants to get... He is making a complete mockery, I think, of himself and everybody else. I'm going to buy wow. Twitter... Deal is done. That's how much it is. Actually, do you know what? I don't think I am. Oh, yeah. naughty Twitter. And now Tesla has been removed from uh, uh, one of the big stock market indexes. I can't remember. I mean, it's still able to trade and, and, and sell stocks and shares, but it's off the S&P 500, I believe, which is a huge shock. Wow. That's all because he's got a big mouth. Because well, he's got a big mouth. <sighs> Dyson. What do you do with that? Dyson. Dyson. Are, Dyson are predicting the future. Yeah, 2030, we're all going to have Dyson robots. Uh, that's that's basically what their what their take on things is at the moment. Uh, they are hiring big in engineers at the moment to sort of fulfill their their roadmap. They're taking on literally hundreds of people to sort of bring their uh, bring their robotic vision of the future to life. I mean, talk about you know um, Elon Musk being you know the richest man in the world. James Dyson does pretty well too. I mean, he's worth 23 billion. Hmm. It's not bad at all, you know, and do you know what? His company actually makes money uh, as well. So uh, apparently it made six billion last year in actual profit. So that's kind of nice. Um, so the, the plan is to spend just over, well, two, three quarter billion between now and 2025 uh, on robotic technologies uh, with the idea that by 2030, we'll all We'll all be using robots at home, to which I have to ask mischievously because they always seem to get into trouble with or about the same company. How many Bosch patents are they going to infringe to make this dream a reality? Niall, that's a yellow card, okay? <laughs> One more <laughs> and you're off. Listen, last story this week, uh, the Gardaí are doing something that uh, uh, you and I absolutely lambasted the authorities in the States for doing. Uh, yeah, and I guess I guess I had to come here at some stage, but uh, Minister for Justice Helen McEntee has floated the idea that the Gardaí might start using facial recognition technology, but it's okay, people, 
it's okay because it's not about mass surveillance. Mm, mm, do you yeah. trust them? Uh, I bet as much as I trust Twitter with my phone number. Yeah. Well, this is also the week where Clearview AI was fined uh, 7.5 million by the UK privacy watchdog and told to delete all image of UK residents for, uh, you might remember what they do, they, they scrape the internet uh, to try and create a, a global database of, uh, of people's faces. I know. That's it. it Reddit publicly available, you know, pictures people put up uh, mm-hmm. on the internet and Clearview was um, scraping all of them and looking to create a, a global database. Absolutely disgusting behaviour. You're, you're genuine in saying that. I mean, it's hard to... Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm very... Do I, I, you know me? I like to, you know, be balanced and stuff like that. But sometimes you just... Uh, that is a... Eh, 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 eh. Anyway, this, uh, there we go. Interesting to see that the Guardian are toying with it. I like the fact they're just toying. toying We're putting it. it out there. We're going to mention it in passing and see if anybody, you know, on podcasts yeah. and radio goes, <laughs> or the general public or any of our constituents go, no. And I hope lots yeah. of people will. Just just a little bit of kite flying. Let's see what happens. Listen, that is it for the news this week. Remember, you get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters, and more at our website, techcentral.ie. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. We all think we're impervious to advertising, but what are the little tells in our behaviour that say otherwise? Sean Higgins is the Managing Director of Future Proof Media, and he sat down with Niall Kitson to talk about the neuroscience of marketing and how sometimes we just can't help ourselves being interested. The term consumer neuroscience brings forth, you know, images of people with the the tops of their heads shaved off and little electrodes pointed into their brain to try and get some idea of what's going on in there. Uh, However, you know, in reality, of course, it's very different. So tell us a little bit about the the building blocks of consumer neuroscience, what we're looking at and what these sort of factors can tell us about things. Brilliant. Yeah. Firstly, Niall, thanks very much for having me. Um, and yeah, the, the points you've made there are, are, are very apparent. Anytime you put the word neuro in front of, in front of anything, it, it scares people and it kind of, uh, it, it draws a red flag. But I suppose the, in terms of the building blocks for consumer neuroscience, what we're trying to do is use various methodologies from neuroscience to make inferences and judgments about why people do the things they do. So how we do that is by measuring people's subconscious response towards various experiences or the presentation of information to understand, okay, not only how do people say they perceive something, but how do they actually kind of feel as, as, as they go through the experience. Um, and how we do that is through using various kind of biosensors. So that's what the first and the, and the, and the primary one that kind of comes to mind is, is often EEG. So what that is, is, is brain scanning. And what we're doing is measuring the electrical currents and the the activity that's going on in the various parts of the brain. As everyone knows, different parts of the brain correspond to different uh, behavior patterns or different kind of sensory inputs. And what we do then is we then move on and we kind of corroborate what's happening in the brain with other kind of physical subconscious kind of responses like, for example, eye tracking. So we measure people's gaze patterns and their fixations to understand how they attend to situations. You know, it it really allows us to understand, you know, cognitive actions and cognitive activities and I suppose how attention works. 
then we kind of complement that also with uh, galvanic skin response. So um, it's not exactly glamorous, but uh, whenever we experience the presence of an emotion, what happens to us is that we perspire at a very, very micro level. So nobody has to worry too much. It's not a, it's not a sweaty hands kind of situation. But what happens is, yeah, that allows us to kind of identify the amplitude and the presence of, of an emotional response. And then we can kind of build out from there to, to understand, well, is that positive or negative using some of the other biosensors? And then finally, one of the other methodologies that we, we, uh, we use is facial expression analysis. So what actually triggers uh, a, I suppose, a displayed emotion on someone's face? So, you know, if it is, think of that, that, that funny moment in, in a movie that makes you laugh or it's, you know, some form of nostalgia in a TV ad, all these different things that kind of that actually are displayed in terms of micro expressions in your face. I really like the idea of facial tracking on that because I, I know uh, there's a, a thing out there called facial feedback theory, which, is, which basically posits that if you smile for long enough, you'll start to feel happy. Uh, is this something you found in your work? Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's uh, as well, like in a sense, what actually happens to us as human beings is we, we live kind of vicariously through other people. So when we see people displaying certain emotions, we start to mirror that and, and we have these mirror neurons that, that will start to fire in response to people enjoying themselves, smiling, as you said, or whatever it may be. So there, there's plenty of research out there that, that has shown, um, you know, when people watch something happen in a movie, the, the brain activity, while they're not engaging in whether it's physical activity or you know even something humorous the the activity in their brain is actually mimicking what's going on for the character in the in in what's obviously happening on screen so it's very interesting to see what what actually happens to people in response to to what they process through their brains what sort of uh, elements have you found out there that would let's say, guide somebody towards uh, a favorable decision, for example, here's a part of a shop, we want you to get over here, we're selling bananas, for example, and we've got the option of a soundtrack, lighting, and uh, the color of shelves, for example. Do you find particular things have worked especially well in this kind of situation? Yes. Yeah, so it's, it's definitely, it's very interesting to see how people respond to, to their environment and the sensory inputs that that creates. So I suppose most of our, our, our processing is taken up by visual inputs. So, you know, it's, it's, it's up in the 80 to 90% kind of range. So if you're looking at kind of sensory cues from a visual perspective, uh, primarily what you're, what you'll actually see happen is, is stores will use kind of high contrast or, you know, retailers will use high contrast kind of aspects to, to grab attention. And then they want it to be but it can't be, you know, a luminous yellow, you know, it's too off putting, you know, it'll throw you off. So they use things that are high contrast, but visually salient. So you process it easily and it's easy to look at, to hold your attention. Uh, another thing that, that can often happen if you're thinking of, I suppose the good example that sticks out is, is kind of wine. So you wonder why different bottles of wine have different shapes and different kind of dimensions and, and how they kind of, how they sit on a shelf. So you can imagine the amount of research that goes into the different shapes and different dimensions of these bottles and then how they sit on the shelf in certain settings and how they sit versus a comp- competitor's product or whatever the competitive set may be. So the actual orientation of the bottle on the, on the shelf actually affects how you process that because what's actually happening is you're walking through the store in a completely autopilot uh, kind of capacity. So you're sitting there and, and, you, and you go to the shop and you think I'm in full control with my shopping list here and I have full agency over what I'm doing. 
But unfortunate reality of the situation is that what, as you navigate yourself through the shop, you're actually on autopilot and your brain's in completely subconscious mode. So what, what's happening is your subconscious mind is taking in all this information at one time and it's kind of predicting, creating a mental model and predicting things for your best outcome. And I suppose if we stick with the bottle of wine, you'll see obviously price becomes an impact. Um, I suppose that your past experience becomes an impact and all these things are, are, are being processed at one time. But interestingly then, what actually there is research has, has gone on um, in the States where to sell French wine, what the store has actually done is they actually played French music in the store. And you might think something as menial as, as the audio track that's playing in the store while, you, while you're navigating and browsing is very menial or, you know, it's, it's, it has very, very minimal impact on, on your behavior. But the store seen incredible kind of uplift in sales towards French wines as they did it. And then I suppose as a control test, they've done the same with, with, with different kind of regions and different, uh, different geographies. And they found the same result and the same impact in terms of just changing the track, the track. Other kind of cues that can be used, I suppose, in a different kind of sphere is, uh, is the likes of fonts. So when you go to a, when you go to, to the restaurants um, and you're, you're looking at the most expensive steak on the menu, what sometimes you'll find is it's actually written in a more complex kind of font. And the reason for that is to make it hard to read. And what they're trying to do is subconsciously make you create the association between the difficulty of reading that font and the complexity of producing that steak and the quality of the steak. So the next time you're, you're, you're in the, uh, in your restaurants and you're, you're, you're pondering over the menu, just have a think about maybe the font type and the typeface that's used. And is it kind of ticking these boxes? Um, other things are, you know, the, the old famous, you know, 99 cent, um, kind of pricing on menus and things like that. So what actually happens is now all these are very, these things that I've mentioned in the last few minutes are, are things that you take for granted, things that you think you know. But the most important thing, I suppose, to tie it all together is that you think you know it, but you're not processing it consciously because we don't have the ability to process all this information consciously at one time. Our brains just wouldn't be able to do it. So what happens is our brain has developed all these shortcuts and these heuristics and you know biases that allow us to navigate the world in an efficient manner. And then what the retailers and the marketers and the, all the clever clogs around the world are actually doing is finding shortcuts and hacks to, to kind of bypass all these kind of biases and then place their products and their services right in front of you. And, you know, for want of a better word, kind of manipulate your attention and your, I suppose, preference and your different kind of cognitive process to make sure that they stand their best chance of you actually converting. So let's engage in a little bit of a thought experiment here, because one thing that there's a tremendous amount of coverage over at the moment is the use of ransomware. Basically, you get an email into your inbox, you click on uh, an attachment you shouldn't, and it releases a payload that goes on to infect other machines on your network, locking them and demanding that uh, you pay. Uh, to have your computer unlocked. Otherwise, the data on it will be either leaked online or destroyed. So we're getting used at this stage to recognizing what a fairly basic ransomware email looks like, whether it's, you know, maybe the English on it isn't very good. Maybe the spacing in it isn't very good. It's very slipshod. It's, you know, it is because perhaps some of those biases and heuristics are in play, people open them uh, on impulse as as much as to do with sort of um, going through their, their emails in a methodical manner. So one imagines that hopefully we're getting a little bit smarter 
when dealing with email. But of course, the market for ransomware is still out there and you know, cyber criminals are still doing what they do. And there's enough people out there responding to uh, keep them in the game. So how would you go about putting together, I suppose, for want of a, a better expression, the perfect phishing email using the, the, the arts as you know them at the moment? <laughs> so this is a, it's almost like an audition <laughs> here from my, this is my pitch, is it? <laughs> um, so look, I suppose firstly, um, the way a lot of these, these phishing emails are, are constructed and with the, with those, I suppose, caveats that you've called out, whether it's the spelling or even the, the urgency messages that we think we're, or we believe we're, we're consciously aware, a lot of them are actually intentionally included within the phishing email almost to find the people who are passive because they're more i suppose more susceptible to the social engineering aspect of what the i suppose the ultimate kind of heist is or the what they're what they're trying to achieve so um i suppose that's that's one aspect to kind of bear in mind as, as we kind of navigate our way through this but using i suppose the principles of of neuromarketing and I suppose consumer neuro, what you'd want to do is you, you really want to tap into that, that, that subconscious mind. And what you're trying to do is make your message seem as passive as possible. So it, it's just the normal part of course. You're not trying to trigger too much cognitive processing because what will happen is when you trigger the mental, I suppose, the, if you think of your cognitive process and it has like a sweet spot in the middle. So if there's not enough happening, it's boredom. And if there's too much happening, it's uh, paralysis by analysis. And that sweet spot is where I suppose the marketer's playground, if we're looking on the positive side of things. But if you're in that fishing space and we're looking for something, I suppose, a little bit more nefarious, you want to make sure you keep people to the lower end of that. So they're, they're not triggering their rational mind um, in a sense. So again, not very stimulating, which kind of aligns with a lot of the, the phishing emails you'll get. They feel like very business as usual processes, whether it's, you know, um, accounts payable can you can you open this whether it's can you click this link they're very business as usual processes that might you know fall under the radar uh, and you know people just fall victim to them victim to them it's probably not because they haven't done the training it's probably not because they're not aware of these things happening it's purely that they they, they had that moment or that lapse in judgment so firstly you want it not to be too stimulating and um, secondly what you want is to Make sure that in terms of attention, you're you're guiding the user through it with a slight bit of a story. And this is where I suppose the social engineering side of it kicks in. And what's happening is the person is wrapped in a in a story and a believable story. And as it, that kind of lends itself back to that business as usual, it stays it stays kind of consistent with this person's exact worldview. So the reason being as we, I suppose, proceed into an experience, we will enter and we will be presented with the, the I suppose, the, the information set. So what's in front of us in this case is an email. Then we form at a rapid pace our expected, I suppose, expected outcome. So we make a prediction. Then we receive our, I suppose, our actual result. And then we review that actual result against the expected outcome. And if it's positive or if it's in line with our expectation, then you have a very kind of, a very straight line, unstimulating experience. But when something changes, and I suppose this is when, you know, when you press that link and you have that, oh no, I can't believe I pressed that. 
I shouldn't have pressed that that highly stressful moment. Well, that's that's because the, the experience up to then hasn't really stimulated before to trigger your kind of conscious processing. So, um, in short, what you're trying to do is almost bore the person into clicking on the link. You want your story to be consistent with their worldview and their expectations so as not to kind of trigger any alarm bells. And then I suppose finally what you wanted to do is is match, I suppose you want to match, I kind of said it already, but you want to match their expectations but say that the outcome is, is still consistent with that you know expected kind of outcome. So the actual outcome lines up because then what you'll often see is when you have with this ransomware or, you know, Trojan kind of attacks where the person's actually sitting in the background, the people can't raise the alarm because that, which is obviously, you know, quite a risk because then the person's sitting in your network and they're, they're observing what's going on in the background and they can, they've access and they're privy to a lot of kind of sensitive information. And then the risks obviously scale up from there. So I suppose in summary, you want to make sure uh, you're, you're not, triggering too much brain activity you want to make sure that your your storyline or your narrative lines up with their their expected kind of their story of, of their day or their worldview and then the outcome i suppose for maximum impact and if you're looking at the trojan kind of side of things what you wanted to do is then the outcome or i suppose the trigger when they click on the link or they click on the the, the, the file whatever it is that that, that injects the the malware or the code you want it to uh to not trigger the alarm bells because then obviously the, the remedial works will, will start yeah so you basically want something that, that would be oh do you know what i meant to send you an email earlier um just here's something that's particularly interesting to do with your job just you know let me know what you think of this or here's an invoice that i meant to send to somebody can you process it something very quotidian like that Exactly, exactly. And I know there's, there is, there has been an awful lot of breaches where I suppose the initial breach may not have been in that vein. But what, what actually happens is I suppose there's, you know, the, the person's breached the network and they're sitting in the, in the background and you have these interactions within an organization. So I send, I send you an email saying, Niall, uh, this invoice, oh, it slipped through cracks, very sorry. Would you be able to pay this as soon as possible? It's overdue. But what they've actually done is duplicated the invoice, changed the IBAN on the footer of the of the invoice, and then you, who's responsible for accounts, takes this urgency, and then you go and process the payment to the invo or to the IBAN that's that's given under the details or the credentials that are provided on this duplicated or fraudulent invoice. And then when you you go to to understand or when the the vendor comes back and they're checking up for the or, or sorry the, the client or the vendor comes and they're checking about, well, what's the story? You haven't paid our invoice. But what's actually happened is the, like the, that email chain isn't on my side, even though it was me who sent you the prompt from my email inbox. It's it's living in the kind of in the abyss. But what's actually happened is originally the breach has happened maybe weeks or months before that, and this uh, this player is sitting in the background and they're waiting for that that sweet spot. They've observed your interactions. They know how we communicate. They can mimic our kind of uh, our conversations, and then they can make sure that I sound like you. I com- converse or I interact. Uh, or I sound like myself when I'm conversing with you or interacting with you. I am aligned with your expectations of what your what your kind of business function is or your 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 business process is. And then what actually happens is all that's happened and the social engineering has almost done in my uh, tone of voice and through my my own email uh, account. And that's all happened because you know I suppose someone sent that initial email following those kind of principles of neuro that I mentioned before. 
And that was Sean Higgins, the Managing Director of Future Proof Media, chatting with Niall Kitsy. If you'd like to find out more about them, you can see their website at futureproofmedia.ie and that, of course, in the show notes on the podcast for you. That's it for our show for this week. Do remember you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website techcentral.ie or catch us each week online or Fridays with RTE Radio and Extra. On to next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes and from Niall Kitson. Thanks for listening. Take care. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.